Good morning. Well, uh, future preachers, teachers, counselors, missionaries to America and beyond, around the world, we got a big problem. It's the Old Testament. If you look at the, the incidence of Old Testament preaching in our churches, it's dramatically declined in the last generation. Preachers are not preaching from the Old Testament. Teachers are not teaching the Old Testament. But it's actually even worse than you think because we actually have the resurgence of Marcionism in our own day. You remember Marcion, the second century heretic? He's the first one who declared the idea that the Old Testament was the God of vengeance and wrath and the New Testament's the God of love and mercy and these are incompatible and the Christians should gut the Old Testament from their proclamation completely. Uh, nowadays, of course, Marcion has uh, you know, best-selling authors that publish books. And so we have the resurgence of Marcionism in our own day. I think uh, it may go down in history as the most persistent heresy in the history of the church. So you've got a lot of work cut out for you. Uh, my, of course, you know, don't forget, of course, that the entire apostolic New Testament church emerged. The only Bible they had was the Old Testament. But we'll let that sit for a while. This year, I thought it would be helpful if I preached on the Old Testament. And I do want to emphasize this year. And for me, that's a big thing. Um, my last series went three and a half years. So I'm going to be a little more disciplined here, and I'm going to work myself into a eight-part series on the Old Testament. And the purpose of it is to demonstrate that the Old Testament serves as kind of the grand theological substrate of the New Testament. Amen. I got one with me already. Marcion is not making ground with that brother. God bless him. There's a kind of a vital redemptive logic which unfolds in the Old Testament, which indeed finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit, in the church, indeed in the new creation. And so our job, our task in some ways, if we can kind of look at the Old Testament and maybe discover the grammar of revelation, if I might use that expression, because these in fact are the building blocks out of which the New Testament is proclaimed. Of course, the Old Testament comes to us uh, in a water ray, you know, 39 books, uh, a lot of people. I think there's over 3,000 figures in the Old Testament. We have uh, 929 chapters. It can be a bit overwhelming. Most people have heard about, you know, Jonah being swallowed up by the big fish. They may have heard about, you know, David slaying the Goliath. Or maybe they found comfort, you know, at a funeral when they heard Psalm 23 read. We, there may be some minor givens that we might could think about in the life of the church. But for most people, if they were to really press them about it, it seems like maybe just a haphazard collection of stories. Perhaps it seems like maybe a, like a long history, something like, you know, Tolstoy, you know, something really long and arduous from, ex, you know, creation to exile and beyond, or what excess to exile with, with a prelude and a postlude. For others, um, 
Maybe it's just uh, like really, really bizarre things, that, like law book, where things like don't plant your field with two kinds of seed. What do you make of that? That gets, even, even, even Richard Dawkins knows that verse. Um, these get thrown out at us. And so it is true. We meet hundreds of people. We meet Noah and his three sons. We meet Deborah and her victory over her sister. We meet Balaam and his talking donkey. We meet uh, Samson and Delilah. We meet Solomon and his court, Elijah and Elisha, uh, Isaiah and the prophets, and on and on it goes. So here we are preparing to be the preachers and teachers of the church and counselors of the church. Where, where do we begin? How do we do this? How do we help a generation that's been largely kind of silented from the Old Testament to reintroduce them to this marvelous voice, the Word of God to us, and Word of God for us, if it's not always to us. What do we do with this? Well, I think the way to go about it, one way, there's probably a hundred ways, but certainly one way to go about it is to introduce four figures to your congregations. And it's for us too. We also need this. How do we kind of create a spine upon which the Old Testament understood and interact with the New Testament? And my experience is if, if people know about these four figures, then they actually have pretty much the great building blocks, theologically at least, in order to understand the New Testament and how the two Testaments relate one to another. And so I'd like to introduce to you uh, this series, which will be on four figures, Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David. The song already gave it away. My dear wife always writes hymns from my sermon series and the Mark series. You know, a 25-verse hymn was pretty tough, but this is a little simpler. <laughs> but the point being that they were trying to create an expectation here of what we might look at in terms of these figures, Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David. And we're also going to sneak in, as the hymn did, I'm going to sneak in a fifth one at the end, the suffering servant, who is not exactly a person, it is a person, but it's also more than that, it's also in some ways the experience of Israel as a nation that also becomes part of the grammar of Revelation. Now what you'll notice already that you know in your knowledge of the New Testament is that we don't relate to these four figures in the same way. These aren't just like figures like what do they do and what do they, what do they say. This is a very different kind of thing. This is a theological point. The, the New Testament actually calls us to look at Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David from different lenses. So, for example, Adam, we relate to Adam racially in, in our humanity, you might say, in our commonness, you know, in Adam all die. It's something that applies to everybody. The whole human race, in some way or another, is related to Adam. That's important to understand that and unfold that a bit. Abraham uh, is, for those of us, in the household of faith. Abraham is not the head of the human race. Abraham is the head of the, the household of faith. And so we relate to Abraham in a different kind of way. He's, you know, Abraham believed God has credited him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6, Romans 4, 3. Moses we relate to uh, legally. You might say even prophetically. He gives us the law. We understand the law through Moses. He's the one that is the tutor leads us to Christ. And, of course, he asks God to send a prophet like unto him into the world. So if Adam is racially, Adam, Abraham redemptively, Moses legally, David is certainly royally or regally, because in, in David we meet the kingship, and we have this wonderful introduction to the righteous king that comes to us. And of course, as you know, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, 
He introduces the theme himself. The, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, right? And so we're already being introduced even on day one of the incarnation, or before the incarnation, but the, the whole thematic thing of how we'll be related to these figures is happening all through the, through the scriptures. So we'll begin to un, unfold this, and we'll have a couple of sermons on Adam, uh, looking through the lens of the fall, kind of a broad lens of the human race. We'll have Abraham. We'll talk about Melchizedek and how Abraham relates to Melchizedek and also Isaac. We'll have a couple of sermons there. Uh, David, the perfect king, sovereign king, the, uh, the suffering servant. But think about it. If you think of these seven kind of jeweled concepts theologically that have come to us in the New Testament, you know, fall, the law, faith, priesthood, prophethood, kingship, sacrifice. If you take away those seven things, the New Testament is really flattened out. There's not much there. I mean, it's really difficult to understand the New Testament without understanding something about fall, law, faith, priesthood, prophethood, kingship, and sacrifice. And so we really can't afford not to engage the Old Testament in a way that makes sense, in a way that is properly understood from the perspective of of, uh, Christians in the New Covenant. So this morning we'll start out uh, with Adam and try to do a bit on this, these chapters here. There's so much here. We could spend a, a ton of sermons on this first chapter, but I'm going to resist. And we're going to let that be that. But let's just open up and say a few things about the creation accounts here in Genesis 1 and 2. We read the, the first one in chapter 1. Uh, with the creation of man and woman, this is, we already have this opening of the chapter with the fact that God is the creator, God is the central player on the stage, and we're going to find, we see that God is not creating the world from pre-existing eternal matter, right? He is calling it into existence. This puts God in a central role of creation. That's a very, very powerful theme. Of course, Hebrews says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by God's power and is formed at God's command, so what was seen was not made out of that which was visible, So Hebrews, by revelation, tells us that God is creating things out of his spoken word, which resonates, of course, what we find here. But also notice the the dominion language that runs through all of this. Notice that he begins by creating these three realms, right? You have the, the realm on each of the first three days. You have the realm of light and darkness. Second day, the realm of water and sky. The third day, the realm of earth and land. And then we go back on the fourth day, and we have three rulers created over those realms, right? It doesn't just say he created the, you know, the sun and the moon. It actually says he creates the, the sun and moon. It uses actually, doesn't use the language sun and moon because those were later deities that were worshipped. So he uses kind of generic language so we don't mess it up. But you have the, the lights, the sun and moon created... For the sake of dominion, he creates the sun to rule over the day, right? He creates the moon to rule over the night, right? So you have this realm, light and darkness, then rulers of the realm. Then, of course, you have the land, and you have rulers over that realm. The, well, actually, first you have the, the birds that rule over the sky, the fish rule in the sea. You have the animals ruling over the land. And then, of course, finally, at the apex of creation, he creates man and woman, male and female, in his image, and the language, again, of dominion, to rule over all of creation. Now, it puts us in a very powerful position. 
Now, we don't have time to really develop the fact that we are created male and female. It's a huge implications that we are created with bodies, and these bodies are called good by God. This is, this is why today one of the challenges that we face in the, all the discussions about same-sex marriage and all of that often forget to recognize that actually theologically it's, this is not about sex. It is about who has sex with whom. It's about the body, the human body. Is the body good? Is the body be trusted? Okay, has God declared the body to be good and that which manifests his image? And are there, in fact, ethical boundaries to our very creation itself? Those are all really important questions that roll out of all of this. But once all this happens, then we see that he actually does something pretty unusual and unique for the human. When he creates men and women, we're told he actually forms them. We're formed and fashioned. And he breathes into us the ruach of God, the breath of God, the Spirit of God is breathed into us, and that we don't see that in the other, other uh, created uh, order there. There's something unusual. So we're created in his image. It's actually mentioned on both chapter 1 and then chapter 2, which focuses more precisely on the, on the human creation. It, both places emphasize we're created in the image of God. Now, that's a, that's a very uh, interesting point. We don't really know... Um, for sure, sure, all that it means. It's one of those things that takes the whole revelation to kind of understand what did this actually mean. But we pretty sure it at least means at least three things. To say we're creating the image of God is not really about our uh, physical bodies being like God in that sense, uh, because God's non corporal, but our bodies in some way are the perfect, perfectly suited to be bearers of the image because of relationships, etc. But certainly it means several things. Uh, we have a moral responsibility. Suddenly we're, we're start, we're, we begin to be given commands to do things and obey things and not do things. So we suddenly realize that, oh my goodness, we have, we are, we, part of being image bearers is that we bear a moral responsibility. That's important. And that, of course, unfolds dramatically as the Bible unfolds. In addition to that, it also, we're given a relational capacity. We're called to know God, to walk with him in the garden. You know, all this relational language begins to spill out from the beginning. So it's a moral capacity, a relational capacity. And certainly we find out, as the, especially as chapter 3 unfolds, it is a representative capacity. We are representing God's rule and reign in the world. This whole apex of creation we put his rulers over it, but clearly we're not the ruler. God is the ruler, as we'll sing later on in the end of our sermon. We'll sing that great hymn, but God is the ruler yet. God is the ruler. We are, therefore, his agents, his regents that bear his reign and rule into the world. Now, all that is just kind of just a foretaste of what's obviously very rich, powerful theological structures going on in, the, in these texts. And whether it took you know, a billion years or 24 hours is really irrelevant in my mind to the theology of the text and what's trying to be communicated to us. Now, when he, when he creates the, the world and, and sets forth the garden, the garden, of course, is this beautiful, perfect uh, place for us. But then this very unusual thing happens in chapter 2, verse 17, which we, we weren't able to read the whole, all of these texts, but he places in the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now that 
is interesting. Now, this is the point we realized the first time, oh my goodness, we're in, like any good drama, you know, we're entering in media res. You know, we're, in, we're entering in the middle of the action. There's obviously something that's gone on before uh, we, got, we got going. So there's another order of creation we now realize. There's a, there's a rebellion that's occurred. All these things now are slowly dawning upon us. There's good and evil that will be presented forward to, to the men and women, and, and the Lord acknowledges that. There's been a rebellion in the angelic order, apparently, and it's now going to spread and try to spread to the human race. So they're given their first command, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, and it says if you do, you will surely die. And I love the actual, if you know the Hebrew there, very powerful two-verb construction. It doesn't say just plainly, you will, you will die. It says, die and you will die. It's a double death. <laughs> Which is actually what happens, physical and spiritual death. So um, they're, they're, they're there in the garden. Now, of course, the, already we, we think about all the theology that comes out of this. They're in the garden they're, to, they're told to work the garden. So here's a whole theology of work embedded here. Work does not happen after the fall. Some people think that after the fall, okay, now get to work. No, now we have a little sweat on our brow, but work is part of the created order. So work is good. See, there we have an affirmation of work. We have creation care embedded. We're called to tend the garden, to care for it as his regents in the world. So there's all of creation care theology wrapped up in this. It's, I mean, there's just so many beautiful theological foundations. It's here. That's why the church cannot start the church year with Advent. You know, prophets prophesy on the coming of Christ. That's way, way too late. We need a whole other season of church year to really give ballast to all of this in a, in a post-Christian world. That's another sermon I'll preach one of the time. Okay, so uh, here we have the um, the the Command comes, and sure enough, in chapter 3, as was read, we have the serpent coming uh, to the woman. The serpent is embodying satanic kind of presence and voice in some way that was a mystery to us. And there the serpent begins to question God's word. This is the classic, kind of the classic paradigm that Satan works in. Did God really say? I mean, in some ways, it's a commentary on all sin, isn't it? Begins with a Satan. So, did God really say that? In fact, it's interesting because in the there's several things about this that are important. First of all, you have a choice is now present. Now, choices are really, really important because choices. It comes down to the whole thing about innocence versus holiness. And and I know there's theologians disagree on this point, but was Adam holy or was he innocent? Now, that itself is a really interesting point. I can't resolve it this morning. I will say this. Even if he, we, we want to declare him being holy, if we want to use that language that he was created holy, we would at least have to say, it seems to me, that he had to be confirmed in his holiness through acts of obedience. That's really important because obedience confirms us in our wellness. That's part of the Wesleyan worldview too, isn't it? That, that choice really does matter. These are not just things that are all like all, you know, in some kind of like divine you know, prediction machine that's all going to kind of fold out according to something that's already been predetermined. There's a real choice to obey or disobey, and that itself is part of the whole relational capacity for holiness, because holiness implies relationships. You, you can, a machine can obey you, but a machine cannot love you, right? 
I know the movie, you know, Her is out there. <laughs> and Theodore Twomby, what a name, falls in love with his iPhone. Or maybe I don't know if it was iPhone, whatever phone he had that, that spoke to him. Now, my phone has Siri on it. He had Amanda on his, or Samantha, I think it was. I don't really have a relationship with what's it, uh, Siri. But I do talk to her all the time, ask her for directions. I mean, let me just see here. Um, let me turn her on here. My phone, I, my phone is actually on. Yeah, okay. Um, do you like my sermon? This is about you, tenant, not me. <laughs> you can see we don't get along very well. She's not happy with this sermon. But the point is that there's a limit to what the relationship you can have with anything mechanical, right? There's something, there's a whole potentiality in the image of God which introduces to relationships ultimately with God and one another. So all that is brought into this choice. Are you going to choose? In fact, ironically, the way it comes out in the text is the text says, it said, uh, 2.17, if you do this, you will die. And Satan point blank says in the response to this one that's quoted back to him, you will not die. So you really have a very stark kind of 2.17 and 3.4. You will surely die. You will surely not die. All right, now, that says it all, doesn't it? That's the whole matrix of sin emerges from that basic paradigm. Did God really say, oh, no, 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 that's not true. God, God didn't, really, didn't really mean that. He meant something over here. That's for, oh, for those people. That's not for you. All those things come in. Most sin happens through rationalization after all, doesn't it? So we, what happens is when this fruit is offered, and the fruit, of course, is not inherently evil, I don't think, right? There's nothing inherently evil about whatever the fruit it was. We say it was an apple. The Indians say it was a mango. Was it a guava? It was a coconut. It'd be hard to kind of bite into a coconut, right? I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, this fruit gets endowed with spiritual significance, right? So this becomes symbolic of an act which either confirms him in holiness or confirms him by joining in the rebellion. All right, so this rebellion is trying to move into the human uh, strata from the very beginning, and this is posed. So in some ways, it becomes kind of a, a you might call it an anti-sacrament. That's how sacraments function. You see, when you come forward and you, you sit at the altar and you take the bread, it's just ordinary bread. But through the Word of God, this bread takes on a sacramental quality that brings you and ushers you into the fellowship of the redeemed, the fellowship of the, of the kingdom. All right, so if a sacrament is as we classically say, an outward sign of an inward and spiritual grace, then why wouldn't an anti-sacrament be an outward and spiritual sign of an inward and spiritual rebellion? So what we actually have here is a, is a sacramental moment, if I, or you may call it an anti-sacramental moment, that occurs right here in the first garden. And so the, the fruit is taken... The fruit is eaten by both, and that immediately ushers us into the rebellion. We, be we become partakers of the anti-sacrament. 
And it becomes like a virus that suddenly infuses the whole human race. This this gets into the whole theology of, you know, we are all present in the loins of Adam. Go figure that one out. But you can't get through Melchizedek without seeing that. If Levi is in Melchizedek, then guess what? We're in Adam. But if you can't get your head around that, you'll never get on us being in Christ on the cross. So just accept it and believe it and thank God for it. It'll help you out eventually. But how in the world are we in Adam is a, is a mystery. But, cert, but somehow or another, we are all there. And I know Pelagian says we're not. I mean, everybody's in Adam. But that's never been the teaching of the proper church. We are somehow in Adam. We, we participated in the rebellion. We're sinners by birth and by choice, of course, as Augustine said. But we become partakers of this rebellion. So we now have the virus in the whole human system. It's just spread to the whole human race. Brian Yike cannot get it out. I mean, there's nobody can get it out. The biggest IT genius cannot get it out. This is something that's no, there's no real solution to this problem. That's what's so powerful the way the gospel unfolds because this is a problem that has no solution, no evident solution. The human race is now bound up in sin. They've taken the, the anti-sacrament. We are representative people. And Paul says, quite bluntly in chapter 3, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I might quote the, the famous childhood rhyme we all know so well. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. How's it go from there? All the king's horses, all the king's men, they could not put Humpty Dumpty together again. That's basically chapter 3, 1 to 7. Human race had a great fall, and all the efforts and all the work and all the societal improvements, all the technology, all the things we do to kind of mask, I mean, civilization in some ways are ways in which we mask the fall in various ways, but it just doesn't work. So we are stuck. Now here we are at the dawn of creation, and this message, you know, some sermons are like really good news. This sermon is really bad news. I mean, there is something that took place in Genesis 1 to 3 that was devastating. I never told you what the motto of the rebellion was, did I? It's not in the text of Scripture, but it's kind of there because essentially it's the foundation of the whole act of, you know, take, eat, you will not die, he takes and he eats. She takes and eats. The motto could be something like this. After hearing the command of God in 2.17, then acting in rebellion in 3, 1 to 7. The motto of the rebellion is, not your will, let mine be done. That's the motto of the rebellion. I want to do what I want to do. If it looks good to me, it's pleasing to my eye, I'll do it. Not your will, but mine be done. And so this is the kind of hanging question, which we won't resolve to November 6th. And I preach again, part two. But is there, we are in this impossible situation. Is there any way to turn the clock back? Is there any way the human race can possibly hit the rewind button and go back and to, to this, you know, could we get another Adam in the world? We got to have another shot at this. But the whole human race is ineligible. We're stuck. 
But there's this, you know, there's this hope. Could we possibly get another Adam? Could we turn the tape back? Go back to this moment. Go back to a garden. And could at that moment of decision, could another Adam say, not my will, but yours be done? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you, Lord, that if nothing else, this text teaches us that you have the last word and that you write the end of every story, including the story of our lives, the story of this world, and the story of the new creation. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would infuse us with the, this, even the seeds of the many, many truths of this passage. And help us, O oh Lord, to walk with you and walk before you as the great creator God of the universe who has started a story that you will complete. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.